and welcome to a new edition of Thinking Aloud About Film. Today, we're going to be discussing The Eloquent Peasant, a film directed by Shadi Ab Abdel Salam. We've already done two podcasts on Almomia, The Night of Counting the Years, which we thought was so great. Like with so many films, you know, from a different culture, there were things that we didn't understand. We had uh, our, our friend Hussein come over and uh, do another podcast with us and take us through some of these questions in the films. It was a very illuminating process. It's a really great film, it's a really beautiful film, and it raises these questions. This is another of the Film Foundation screenings, so they're showing, or they were showing, because by the time this comes out it will have gone, El Momia and also The Eloquent Peasant. He only made two fiction films, one was The Mummy, Almomia, and one is The Eloquent Peasant, which is a short. Uh, he also made a few documentaries, but it's essentially we, we will now have covered his entire uh, fictional output, which is a real, real shame because he, he's clearly a great, great film, or was a great, great filmmaker. As with all the Film Foundation things, they're showing uh, the films with some supporting stuff around them. There's a very interesting interview with Yasmin El Rashidi, who's, who's an Egyptian academic, uh, who talks about both films and talks about his career and talks about how they fit into sort of Egyptian film culture and also how they relate to Egyptian politics of the time because they, they were both made in sort of 1968, 1969, 1970. I once again think that this is an extraordinarily beautiful film. It's an unusual film. It's almost like as if someone had made a film out of, I don't know, a biblical parable or one of uh, Montaigne's short stories or something, yeah. Which is essentially what it is, because he, 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 the, the basis for it is one of apparently the very, very few surviving texts from the ancient Egyptian period. Uh, the film begins with a peasant leaving his family to go to market, and he's got two donkeys, and uh, they're loaded with uh, goods. I mean, we later hear it's nitrate and something else. But the important thing is that, you know, he's going to market to to sell or exchange stuff to bring back home for his family. And on his way, this highborn man and uh, his servants, I suppose, block his path. And they do it by putting their cloth that they're drying and blocking the path with it. So that it means that the peasant either has to go through the water, which he can't, has to trample on the cloth, which is a crime, or has to uh, go onto the property of someone else, which is equally a crime. Right. I think the donkey goes into the path or nibbles something. They beat him up and steal his goods. And he's so outraged by the injustice that he goes to plead his case to the governor. Uh, and the governor is so impressed by his eloquence that he informs the pharaoh, and the pharaoh asks that all he says be transcribed. So, you know, what we get in the film is an eloquent plea for justice 
for the powerless spread out over 15 or so of the 20 minutes of the film as with the mummy it, it, it looks incredible you know every, every shot is it just looks like a something you could frame um, you know the the use of the landscape and the use of the in, in interiors of the buildings and that kind of thing it, it, it's, it's just amazing and, and it, it's uh you know re- and as with the mummy it's a really really nice restoration so it, it's great to get to see it like it's this extraordinarily beautiful it's one of those films that seems simple the frame is not cluttered but everything is so beautifully composed and colored it's breathtaking to to watch every camera move is purposeful like it's a real filmmaker that's done this the scenes where he's coming from the sand hill to beg for justice are just beautiful and also the scenes where he's actually in the palace once again begging for justice and the camera moves in and you have a slight recomposition of this very sparse there so there are two columns you know in the foreground he's in the background and as the camera moves in the setting seems to shift shape in conjunction with the words i thought it was just so breathtaking that I saw it twice. What uh, struck you most? The look of it and all these shots of the landscape and people walking along the horizon and the, you're shooting a film among the kind of monuments of ancient Egypt. So it's, it's kind of, it's quite hard for it not to look good. <laughs> but as with some of the Shaheen films, the, the way he films the landscape and the desert and the, yeah, the people, people dotted around the desert, it, it's all very, very purposeful. There are some yeah. shots that I think are just really breathtaking because the thing is, he uses the desert as a kind of horizon. And it reminds me a little bit of that line where there's that interview with John Ford. You said the horizon, either in the top third or the bottom third of the frame, you never <laughs> you know, do it head on. And in this film, you see that in practice, the camera is always at an interesting angle. The sand dunes themselves break up the frame in interesting ways. You know, sometimes the characters walk through those sand dunes at a horizontal it's just beautiful to look at. I did think at the end where he is rewarded and he goes back home dressed and with his donkey full of goods and the goods include a lamb. You know, I was thinking, oh my God, this is so interesting because this is kind of like a representation of wealth yeah, to its audience. But then I noticed also that it had a monkey. And he just felt he'd been loaded up with stuff by the governor and perhaps stuff that wasn't particularly useful yeah. you know he needs stuff to survive that's um, right because a monkey feels like such a luxury good for a peasant it's an extra mouth to feed that serves no purpose so i think like in peasant cultures every animal that doesn't serve a purpose is just an animal that's taking food away from the family maybe he's now got so much wealth that he can afford to keep a monkey the other thing that i thought is that the film is very homoerotic. Well, apart from you briefly see his wife, there are no women, and all the men obviously are shirtless, and it does linger on that. But I, I, I don't know whether it's just lingering on it because there's nothing else to show. I, I, but I, I think you're right, there's a lot of gazing at each other. So I would put it kind of more strongly than that. There are a series of choices. So, of course, the fact that there are no women except the wife at the beginning is kind of motivated to a certain extent by the story, though another director would have had no compunction about dressing up the court with like handmaidens or, you know, female servants or whatever. This is all male, Uh, but it's not just that they're all male. You know, again, you could imagine a court that would be full of old people and fat people and scrawny people and whatever. 
this one, all the protagonists are kind of half-dressed, and they're all, like, beautiful, right, and super fit. Presumably, you know, building those pyramids did build up your yes, packs. But, but it doesn't appear to have done but in this But these are not the slaves, sweetie. <laughs> That's true. There must have been a very good, very good gym in the vicinity. So, so the, the, the fact of, like, choosing, you know, these very beautiful bodies, half undressed, and the film does have a kind of, um, which of course to me is very appealing, right? Because it's not overt or indiscreet, but it's somehow there, right? And I kind of like the idea that this eloquent plea for justice, you know, that harkens back to the Middle Kingdom, you know, in these texts that have become kind of almost sacred in their influence and in their eloquence, you know, are also associated with, you know, homosexuality, really. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that, that was a, you know, a great bonus. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that why you watched it twice? <laughs> no, actually, I was so impressed by how beautiful it was that I wanted to re-experience it again. And also, I wanted to do some image capture, yeah, to dress up this podcast as proof. Uh, but also, you know, because it has these very eloquent things about you can be, you know, the um, scales of justice and, you know, all these comparisons, very eloquent and poetic. I wanted to understand that better, really. But I did quickly look at Mubi and they have uh, at the bottom of um, the description, they have some, some comments from viewers. And one of them says something like, a beautiful film, but very poor philosophy. And I wondered if you had any views on that. I mean, firstly, I'd say, you know, th this is a legend. So it's kind of like, as we said at the start, it's like someone, I don't know, someone filming the story of the prodigal son or something. I got someone objecting to the philosophy of that. Well, it's like, you know, that that's the story, you know. The other thing is, I, I think from a, a Western point of view, when we watch The Mummy, and I think we have the same issue here, that there are subtexts here and there are issues, things going on here that you don't quite get and you don't quite understand because they're relating to Egyptian culture. The interview on the Film Foundation website with, with Yasmin al-Rashidi makes this point that the, the interviewer says, well, look, that it's really great to have an Egyptian academic commenting on these two films. You, you can watch these films and appreciate them for their structure and for their visual beauty and for the quality of the filmmaking, but you're watching it and you, you, know, you know the stuff you're missing. Um, and so having someone explaining for not not only the the kind of historic context for it in terms of where the stories come from but also the contemporary context um in, in terms of so, so her point about the contemporary context is that both these films were made shortly after the six-day war um and it's a similar point to where shaheen I think the, the sparrow was shaheen's film about that and so it's a period where nasa at that point had, had been telling everyone it's fine you know we're winning, this is all going to be fine. And then the Egyptian populace discovered, no, actually we lost. And so they find they've been misled by by leadership and they've, they've been, you know, they've been fed lies for for an extended period. That's the context, or the contemporary context for these films. It's hard to understand that because we, we, we don't have that context and we can't quite see the links. But, apparently, you know, if you're Egyptian, there are strong links mm. there. So I think for someone to sit there on movie saying, oh, I don't like the philosophy. I, I mean, it. <laughs> um, it's very, I thought it was very interesting because for me, it did remind me of like, you know, when I was a child and you'd go to church and the, the priest would give a sermon, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, they're very idealistic, 
but they're hard to argue with. Shouldn't uh, the ruler serve justice? Yeah, if he's not serving justice, what is he serving? <laughs> yeah, corruption and greed, right? So I think for me, those things, you could argue that they're idealistic, that the world isn't like that, but actually it should be like that. And the film kind of spoke to me because in a way you have a similar kind of situation in the UK now, you know, where uh, you all you see is corruption and people being greedy and the poor being oppressed and no one really working in the interests of the poor. They're claiming to, you know, what kind of stealing as much from the public purse, you know, as possible and going through a massive redistribution of wealth from the poor to the rich. So, you know, this idea, how do you get justice yeah, for people who are powerless? You know, in our system, yeah, whose function is it to serve justice? And why aren't they held accountable to justice? I mean, right now, Parliament is fighting the courts. <laughs> you know, in my view, the film spoke very eloquently to me about my contemporary situation beyond, you know, the other ways that it might speak to an Egyptian view. You know, you can think of various incidents that have been here with a member of the public. You know, is very eloquent and you know he's on he's on question time or something and and really kind of rips apart the Tories on the panel and you know there'll, there'll then be a lot of news coverage the next day oh this person was amazing but then you know nothing, nothing happens or uh, what's the guy's name Mick Lynch the the rail union trade unionist when the rail strike started he was always being interviewed on TV and people were surprised oh my god this guy's actually this guy's very eloquent <laughs> you know it, it's the same thing that people in power are surprised that someone from that background has the intelligence and, and has the eloquence to actually make that case very firmly. And, and what happened in his case is he doesn't tend to get interviewed on TV yes. anymore because, he, because people tend to agree with him and they, they don't like him. He's that. my hero, really. So what the film does in this very poetic way that the poetry is both visual and verbal is make a plea for justice, right? And of course, where the film becomes you know, an imaginary resolution to real contradictions in life is that the peasant is heard and that justice is served and that his persistence in seeking justice is rewarded. What we see in our life is, you know, a lot up to the middle bit and then, you know, justice is not served. People who seek it are not rewarded, they're punished. <laughs> yeah. So actually, it makes you think about these issues in a way that is very beautiful and powerful and eloquent. The, the other thing to discuss is the fact that you know, these, these two films are both incredible, but they're the only two fiction films he made. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, we talked about Bill Douglas recently, someone who's a truly great filmmaker, but only made a very, very small number of films. As far as I can gather, the, there's a couple of reasons why he didn't make, get anything else off the ground. He had a project, again, a bit like Bill Douglas with Comrades. He had a project he was trying to get off the ground for, for 12 years, I think, about Akhenaten. And there's a couple of issues here. Firstly, I, from the interview on the Film Foundation website, uh, neither of these films were commercially successful in Egypt because they were sort of so different from mainstream Egyptian cinema at the time. I mean, they're, obviously they're now seen as classics, but at the time they were commercial failures. They were more popular outside Egypt. There was the kind of involvement with Rossellini, who kind of promoted the mummy, I think. So he was better known outside Egypt, probably, than inside Egypt. But he was very uncompromising. So he apparently had an offer of funding for the Akhenaten project, but the, the funding was from overseas. And his view was to keep the story pure 
it had to be purely an Egyptian production and, and purely funded by Egypt. Uh, but of course, the Egyptian film industry didn't want to do that because his previous films had failed in Egypt. Again, a little bit like Bill Douglas, a very kind of uncompromising vision led to this guy not working again. Plus also, again, like Bill Douglas, I think he died fairly young. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's very interesting, these you know, great filmmakers who are then reclaimed after death. Uh, the Night of Counting the Years is considered the, by many the greatest film in the history of Egyptian cinema. And here's somebody who basically did not get another chance at a fiction uh, feature. A very interesting fact that, you know, that I'm sure takes place in, in many countries where people, partly because of their character and partly because, you know, they're visionaries and they're not within the mainstream of, you know, narrative filmmaking, uh, do something absolutely great that is recognized as being great, you know, and yet not afforded more chances uh, because the films were not financially successful. It's interesting as well that these filmmakers are working at a time after authorship because I think if you had been making films in the 1930s and 40s, it would be a total given that if your film didn't make money, you wouldn't be given much of a second chance. Unless there were exceptional circumstances, your films were expected to, to be successful, financially successful, right? To connect with audiences. And if you were a filmmaker that didn't connect with the mass audience, then you weren't working in, in cinema, really. You know, so I think it's only after the ninth, the late 50s and 60s and the whole wave of authorship. The director was seen as the motor of a film and, you know, the film was supposed to express the ideas or thoughts or the feelings of, you know, the director that this kind of insistence on control became more imaginable, yeah? Because yeah, I don't think yeah, it was even yeah. imaginable before, right? Like kind of, yeah, you know, the director's yeah. job was to make a film that connected with audiences, right? Like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, this call, it's called the film exactly. industry. <laughs> you know, so, so, so I think these filmmakers are now working, yeah, in a context that is still industrial, but where they're hoping to make art, yeah, and lasting art at that. So, and in a way, of course, they both succeeded, you know, but in not fulfilling the industrial fact or the economic function, their opportunities were definitely restricted. I think the, the other point to make in terms of the reputation he has now is the impact of the restorations. Because, I mean, the, both these films look amazing in the restorations. I found a copy of The Eloquent Peasant on, on YouTube, the, an unrestored version, and really it looks like nothing. You know, kind of washed out image. It, it has no impact at all. And so I, th I think, you know, and if that was the only way people were able to see these films, you know, you, they, they wouldn't have yeah. the reputation they have. I mean, I think this has to be underlined because, you know, I'm friends with film buffs who are film buffs, in quotation marks, but actually who don't seem to give a shit about the art of cinema at all because they're quite happy to watch something, you know, in a blurred vision copy on YouTube, right, that kind of looks nothing like it was meant to look, right? And if you think, well, kind of, you know, films are, people work so hard on creating particular images and textures and effects of light, right, to, to express and convey something in cinema, right? And if you're watching a version where all that is lost, then what are you watching? You're watching something for plot, right? And film is so much more than plot. 
if you're watching the eloquent peasant for plot you're not actually going to get much out of it um similarly yeah, with the mummy exactly. right? so, yeah. so so thank you very much for these restorations they you know they've given us uh, something very very beautiful thank you very much for listening we are thinking aloud about film i'm jose i'm richard bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.